The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And here we are. It is Wednesday morning. I don't know where the sun has disappeared to. Yesterday was a beautiful day, I have to say. Um, I was able to spend quite a lot of time out in the sunshine. Um, Today, for some reason, the sunshine has disappeared. I don't know where it's gone. Uh, We'll try and get it back. But we will be talking about a great many things over the course of the show. Some will be sad. Some will be happy. Some will annoy you massively. Sir Gerald Howarth is going to be here. Uh, He's going to talk about the NATO summit, which is going on uh, over in Madrid. Boris Johnson, of course, spoke yesterday uh, about the situation with Moscow, with Russia, with Vladimir Putin. Uh, We're going to talk as well about Nicola Sturgeon and her wish to take to the Supreme Court the idea that referendums should not be decided by Westminster, but should be decided by the people of Scotland. She now wants a second referendum to get independence for Scotland. I know a lot of people in England will say, good, Good riddance. In fact, people in England, many of them, will say if we could vote in it, they would definitely get independence. But I would say to you uh, that the union is a very important thing. Uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland exists as a great nation uh, of four countries made up into one. Uh, Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. I don't wish to see any part of that disappearing off. And I think most people in Scotland don't either. And certainly the polls would suggest that if there was a referendum today... It would not happen. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's kick things off very much, first of all, with Professor Frank Faraday, author, sociologist, of course, as well. Frank, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Let's kick things off with Scotland, first of all. What's your take on the kind of uh, power play, which you might call Nicola Sturgeon's move? Well, it is a power play. I think she's trying to, uh, in a sense, reinforce her position. She's under a lot of pressure within Scotland, or a lot of people are getting a little bit fed up with some of her policies. Uh, And I think that what she's trying to do is to distract attention from her her role as a a prime minister. And uh, I think as far as she's concerned, uh, by playing in the courts, by going to the Supreme Court, she's trying to sort of uh, of send the signal out that I'm here defending the whole people of Scotland. And I think it's a slightly cynical move because it's unlikely that the Supreme Court can have the authority to uh, uh, initiate a referendum. This is something that the, the Parliament in London has the right to decide. Uh, but it's a very dangerous precedent as well, because we already have too many judges making too many decisions about our public and our political life. And the last thing we want is any more of this. Yes. It's an interesting kind of move for many reasons, but it's also one of the latest in a long line of applications to the law, isn't it, for politicians? You know, we saw it with the prorogation of Parliament, where people were trying to get Boris Johnson basically arrested, dragged out of Downing Street for breaking a law that didn't exist when he supposedly broke it. Uh, You had people in the High Court in Edinburgh trying to stop it, um, people trying to stop Brexit by going through the the course of the courts. And it's a relatively new development, this, isn't it? It is very much so. If you look back at the 50s, 1960s, 70s, even the 80s, it was very, very rare the courts to really involve themselves in such important political decision making. And I think what we're now seeing is a, a process that some people uh, in sociology call juridification, where the, where, where the role of the courts expands and expands into new domains of public life, to the point at which that decisions that were hitherto taken by politicians are outsourced to the courts. And that's really bad for democracy. Mm. Because at the end of the day, do we, do we want a couple of unelected judges to make a decision on matters of such important national concern uh, rather than the people that we've elected? Yes. And that, of course, is the problem with the European Court of Human Rights as well, isn't it? Uh, well, the European 
Court of Human Rights is a joke. I mean, that is a complete joke. They basically consist of people who aren't even good enough to be proper judges in their own national Supreme Courts. They, yeah. These are people who've been sent out there just because, you know, they need, need to get a job. And they are, have this kind of uh, assumption that they're the highest moral authority in the world. And all you need is just one of them to basically reverse the decision taken by a parliament of a nation such as Britain, by politicians that were elected by millions of people. Mm. And I think when you've got that kind of, uh, you know, a kind of misbalance between democratic decision making and the role of a particular judge and the arrogance of that judge to act in that kind of way, you do have a very big problem. So I do wish we just got rid of that court altogether and just said goodbye to it. Well, I mean, certainly we could leave it there in a kind of almost an honorary status um, symbol uh, of what went before because people who want us to remain kind of tied to it keep making the argument, well, you know, it was instituted by Winston Churchill after the Second World War and, you know, if it wasn't for this particular human rights court, we'd all be stabbing each other and killing each other and putting people in gas chambers. Well, I'm afraid that's not actually true because we have been and, and continue to be a relatively civilised continent since the World War II uh, without, with, the, with the unfortunate uh, distinction of, of Bosnia um, and the former Yugoslavia. You know, um, I don't think we need it. I think it's it's it, it's it's an anachronism. It was set up a long time ago, and it's no longer relevant. I think the human rights uh, issue was very important after Second World War, given what had happened. Yeah. But I think uh, the meaning of what a human right is is fundamentally altered. It's no longer about you know the freedoms that we all need. It's no longer about basic democratic right protection mm. from arbitrary rule. Human rights are now uh, applied to just about anything in life. People come along and say, I need to have a human right uh, to higher pay. Mm. You know, my human right, my son needs a, has a human right to go to university. So human right just becomes basically a kind of wishful thinking yes. that you can apply to you know, anything that you particularly want or demand. And it becomes a kind of privilege, uh, which is considered then to be a necessity you know because some things are privileges some things are not granted automatically but you have these entitled people now many of them in their 20s who believe that they they should be given everything and that they should have rights to everything and that they should have the opportunity to do everything yeah i mean privilege is really important when you've earned it i think there's going to be a very cl clear relationship between working hard struggling and getting stuck in and then having the privilege of the rewards that has come about as, as a result of that. But when a privilege is something that is handed down from above, just merely by asking for it, it does have a distorting effect upon our lives, mm. upon public life. And it also lowers ambition. Yes. Because all you've got to do now is just wait for something to show up uh, and something that you receive as a gift rather than something that you've actually struggled for. Well, that's the thing. We all now know people who have re retained a job in a situ situation because they've threatened their employer with something. You know, the power of the employer seems to have diminished to such an extent that, you know, basically you can get away with anything. I mean, I come from the old school where you go into work, uh, you do what you're asked to do for the day, you try not to get yourself into any terrible trouble, and you go home and you pick up your paycheck at the end of the month. Nowadays, you go in if you feel like going in, uh, because you might want a better work-life balance. You know, you don't really have to do any work that anybody asks you to do in case it might upset you. Um, 
you know, you might be able to dictate the terms of the hours in which you work or the number of days you take off because you might need some, you know, work related stress. Um, and they keep calling it annual leave instead of time off. You might wish to take a load of time off because you're having a child. I mean, you know, the whole world has been tipped on its head, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, you use the term work-life balance, and it's an interesting term mm. because it assumes that on the one hand there is life here and that there is work there. Right. And, and the assumption is that work is the negation of life. Right. It's a kind of spiritual death that you really don't want to be involved in. And the, all the creative, uh, uh, important dimensions of work, which is really important for our human development, mm. becomes implicitly devalued by the way that human resources managers uh, use this. And I think that what has happened increasingly is that in most large places of work, the human uh, resources uh, sort of industry has expanded to the point at which everything becomes micromanaged and they are in the position rather than the employers to basically say, this is what you can do, this is what you cannot do. So just to give you an example, this is one of my, something I'll never forget as long as I live, I go into my office in the university a few years ago, and I noticed that in the middle of the room, there's a filing cabinet that's been there, small filing cabinet, it's been there for days. And I tell the people, hey, why don't you move this? It's everybody's way. It says, it's not our job. <laughs> it's not up to us. To we have to wait until the people who've been trained that can do this. Right. This goes on for four or five days. In the end, I get so angry that I just pick up the, I pick up the filing cabinet myself. And I put it in the corner. Everybody just looks at me as if I had committed a cultural crime. Right. You know, you don't do this. You're not trained to lift this thing. And when you think like that, you know, society does become completely paralyzed in the workplace yes. because there's no human interaction, no dynamic interaction. And everybody is so risk averse that nothing ever happens and nothing ever gets done. And funnily enough, that is a throwback for me rather than a, a look ahead to what the old trade unions used to do the kind of Spanish practices that used to get themselves involved in. But stay where you are, Frank. We've got much more to talk about, uh, much more wokeism to address. And also, of course, uh, we'll be taking your calls as well and talking about Scotland. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Uh, we're talking to Professor Frank Ferreira, uh, who is, of course, an author and a sociologist. We've been talking about the Scottish uh, attempts at another referendum, which may or may not come to pass. We shall see. Uh, we're going to talk in a moment about Boris Johnson and the COVID inquiry and where it all goes. But, Frank, I wanted to mention one story to you. I don't know whether you've seen it. And it's the story that we talked about yesterday, actually. Michael Vaughan, the uh, former England cricket captain, uh, a man very closely associated with Yorkshire cricket. He was accused of some stuff which kind of didn't go anywhere uh, over the whole um, uh, inquiry into uh, what was said to be racist behaviour and a kind of institutionally racist organisation. Um, a letter or an email rather was written yesterday uh, from the sort of diversity group inside of the BBC saying that it was dreadful and, and horrible and ghastly that he was ever given his punditry job back. It turns out that after that, he's now decided to step back from the role. So he's kind of been cancelled effectively by these people who, despite the fact that he's not been found guilty of anything, despite the fact that he has denied the allegation against him, he's now not working at the BBC anymore. They've said that, you know, his contract remains, but he's not actually working. Well, I'm very, very troubled by this because um, we now live in a world where it's enough to make an accusation. It doesn't really matter whether the accusation is right or wrong, whether it's proved or disproved. Just the very fact that you're the target of an accusation 
means that many people now make the decision to fall on their sword or decide to resign. And I kind of wish that he would have stood up a little bit and said, look, you know, so I've been found uh, not to be guilty. You know, I'm, I believe that I'm not a racist. You know, I don't behave in a racist kind of a way. Just because a bunch of jumped up diversity trainers in the BBC want to have a go at me is not a grant for me to resign. I think people need to stand up a little bit. Yeah, Especially I think so. someone like Michael Wan, who I have a lot of respect for. Yeah. I, I was very disappointed, but at the same time, you look back over the last couple of years, just look at the number of people who decided to roll over and resign mm. instead of stand up and fight. Yeah. And every time somebody resigns, it makes it more difficult for the next person who's the target of cancelling. Oh, for sure. Because the people who wrote that e email will now be sitting around triumphantly uh, congratulating themselves, clapping each yeah. other on the back. He says he's doing it for the well-being of his family, and I kind of have sympathy for that because when you're in the middle of something like that, it's not very nice and it's not very pleasant. And in fact, it becomes quite difficult if you haven't got, uh, you know, a robust nature or you really don't want to be troubled by something like that. Because you, you know as well as anyone, it can be really horrible. But this is what they rely on. They rely on you just being put off to the extent that you just walk away. Yeah, I mean, this is why I think. We all have a responsibility um, at the moment because the, the stakes are very, very high now. And we live in a world where anybody can get accused of anything. Mm. You know, so it's almost like a Stalinist totalitarian system yeah. where people point the finger at you and the mere pointing of the finger finishes you. Yeah. So under those circumstances, when so much is at stake, you just got to basically have a little bit more courage and say, I know it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be really uncomfortable for my family, for my friends. But I owe it to our society to stand up and fight. Mm. Because if, if this sort of uh, scurrilous crusade gains even more momentum, it's going to be at the, at the expense of a lot of us. It's going to completely distort the way we lead our life. People will be self-censoring all the time. Yeah. And you and I don't want to live in a world like that. Well, that's right. And people, I know people who have said, oh, I was going to, uh, um, you know, remark on that tweet or I was going to send a tweet out that said this, but I just thought, you know, it's so much trouble, I'm just not going to bother. And that's exactly what they want, these cancel culture types. They want you not to do it because you might worry that you get more attention uh, of a negative kind than you would want. But, you know, I don't adhere to that principle, and, and but I'm afraid more and more people are adhering to that. All the more reason why, you know, Programs like yours are really, really important because just merely by the fact of saying no, no more, we're not going to surrender. Now you're, in the, you're providing a, a voice for a lot of people who are also worried about this development. Yes. I haven't got the strength to stand up and, and make their voices heard. And I just, I'm, I really do worry now that, you know, that especially in the cultural sector, the, 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 the mood and the morale is such that these trainers, these people that run these courses, have become semi-gods who basically, almost as if they, they, they love, you know, sort of attacking people and they have this big smile on their faces. Look, we got this person, yeah. we got that person, we got you. And I think somewhere along the line, we just got to basically get rid of their power, get rid of their influence and, and, and send them back to where they yeah. come from. It's almost like notches on the bedpost, isn't it? They go, oh yeah, yeah I got him and I got her and I got those people and they got shut down and it was really great. Terrible, terrible thought. Let's talk about the COVID inquiry finally, Frank, because um, it looks like it's suddenly going to sort of whir into action at some point. Um, 
We're told that they're going to hire a load of barristers. It's going to cost an absolute fortune. I'm not convinced that they're going to find anything out which is going to be of much use to us. But what we also know um, is that an awful lot of, of, of young people are suffering mental health difficulties, kids who didn't go to school for two years. You know, there's an awful lot around the COVID inquiry that is still current, if you like. It is. Uh, I'm not a fan of public inquiries. Uh, they take a very long time. They cost a lot of money. They end up becoming a terrain where people are making political statements, they're grandstanding. And at the end of the day, when you look at most of our public inquiries, some lasting adult, you know, 12, 10, 12 years, mm. nothing comes out of this. It becomes really a, an industry that benefits the, the legal profession and maybe some politicians, but everybody else isn't really held by it. I would rather that we had politicians with the courage to say, this is what we learned from COVID. This is what we're going to do. These are the steps that we're not taking so that this, these coming years be better prepared. I would far rather that we had a debate about the future than go over the past and go over the past and, and just basically mull over everything. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's not going to bring anybody back to life. That's not going to help anybody else. Uh, and that's not going to prepare us to face the challenges of the future. No, quite. And I mean, already you can see the people kind of running for cover and saying, well, of course, we didn't really know. I mean, I've heard Boris Johnson say on more than one occasion now, well, we didn't really know what we were doing. And that's the defence, because they say, well, nobody knew. So therefore, you can't blame us for getting it wrong. And they kind of go, well, that's not really an excuse. It's not an excuse, but at the, at the end of the day, if you read history backwards and we mull over all the mistakes that were made during the, the course of it, uh, all that we can do is just basically say, oh, well, you know, there were, you know bad things happened, uh, rather than focus our attention on the fact that we're, you know, we're in a very difficult moment at this point in time. I think uh, British society needs all of its uh, moral and intellectual resources focused on how we deal with inflation, the public health problems, the war in the Ukraine, rising price. I mean, all these things are, are huge issues, much bigger than anything we faced since 1945. Yeah. But let's focus on that rather than have this kind of drama, a rerun of, of COVID again, at a time when we just simply haven't got the mental energy to even face the challenges that are in front of our eyes today. Yes. And I guess the difference between now and 1945 as well is that we don't have a kind of unity of purpose anymore. Whereas after the Second World War, everybody kind of knew what had to be done. And it was just a matter of how you achieved that. Whereas now you've got a lot of disparate voices not agreeing on what has to be done. This is, uh, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. I think one of the most important tragedies that we're not confronted with is the absence of solidarity, where mm. even if you and I disagree, or even if you and I are on different sides of a particular conflict or even an industrial dispute, there's a sense of that we're all in it together. Yeah. That uh, at the end of the day, you know, if I benefit from something, then that's not going to be at your expense. That kind of sense of a zero-sum uh, intellectual and cultural attitude that mm. it reveals that is very, very bad. And somewhere along the line, especially now that a lot of people are demanding more money from their employers, a lot of people are saying they're going to go on strike, all these things, we just got to somehow work out a way of working at you know, some kind of uh, common forum where we understand that you know, we can't just simply go at it alone. We need to somehow do these things together. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Frank, thanks very much indeed. Always good to talk to you. Professor Frank Ferradi, author and sociologist there on the state of play, the place that we are in, where we find ourselves. We'll talk some more about this. Coming up next, uh, this is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're here with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course, when it is time for Ian Collins. He'll take over at one o'clock. Kevin O'Sullivan back uh, from four o'clock with the Drive Time Show. I'll be on the talk later on tonight uh, from 9pm, of course. Uh, Not quite sure who's on it with me, but it should be a very interesting evening. There's lots to talk about. There's the whole Nicola Sturgeon story from Scotland. Uh, There's the whole business of uh, the COVID inquiry. There's a NATO meeting going on suddenly uh, over in Madrid where there's conversations going on constantly about what the response from NATO and the West should be uh, to Vladimir Putin's latest kind of onslaught where he's been uh, firing missiles deliberately uh, what would be described as civilian targets. They claim, of course, that they're not. Roger Boyes, writing in The Times this morning, talks about cross-border raids by special forces and smarter sanctions needed uh, now to begin to resist Putin in a much more kind of positive uh, and deliberate way. Let's talk now to Sir General, uh, to, to, to Sir Gerald Howarth, a Conservative MP and former Defence Minister, of course. Uh, he's uh, talking to us right now uh, because we need to find out, Sir Gerald, basically... Um, whether this NATO action that is about to be taken is going to work. Well, good morning, uh, Mike, and a great pleasure to be part of the uh, uh, Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you. And uh, broadcasting here from my studio in uh, Bury St. Edmunds, uh, courtesy of Volvo, says <laughs> the largest agency where I'm having my car looked at. Excellent. Uh, yes, I think it's a significant summit, as the uh, private minister said. It's significant particularly because it... Uh, uh, they resolved their differences in NATO over the admission of S- Sweden and Finland, and that is now going to go ahead. And of course, what, what concerned uh, uh, Putin allegedly was the increase in uh, NATO activity, and that's why he allegedly he invaded uh, Ukraine. Of course, the reason why uh, he invaded was because uh, he was trying to rebuild the Soviet Empire. Mm. And uh, uh, the first thing that has happened is that two more countries have joined NATO. And Ukraine obviously is poised to join the European Union. But uh, two things, Mike. First, there has to be complete unity in NATO and the West. We cannot have any countries concerned about the cost of living crisis, admittedly in their own countries. We cannot have them saying, oh, well, let us sue for peace uh, with Russia. Putin cannot be rewarded uh, for his intolerable aggression. Secondly, the West has got to decide what it is going to do. What we're doing at the moment is dribbling uh, very important, very valuable military supplies into Ukraine, but it is not stopping Putin from his aggression. And if he succeeds in the Donbass, perhaps he'll move further west in Ukraine, and possibly he will go for the Suwalki Gap between Kaliningrad, the home of his his Baltic uh, fleet, Uh, which is cut off from Russia by Poland and Lithuania, drive a wedge through there. So there's everything at stake. And I fear that the West is basically constantly behind the drag curve, needs to decide at what point they're going to check Putin's advance. Well, exactly right, because I think, as Roger Boyce points out, you know, it's all very well doing what we have been doing up to now, but it's effectively treading water, really, because nothing's really changing. The, 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 the sort of the balance of power appears to be more or less the same. And when uh, the, the whole conflict started, 
Vladimir Zelensky was very clear. He said, you know, if this is not stopped here in its tracks, Vladimir Putin will continue on and go to other countries. He won't leave it at Ukraine. If he gets a victory here, he will continue to move forward. Absolutely. He's made it perfectly clear in his uh, speech last year, which we uh, in the West ignored, he made it perfectly clear that it is his, he, he bitterly resents uh, the fact that um, the Berlin Wall fell and that uh, the, the Soviet Empire collapsed. And that view is shared by a lot of Russians. They share his resentment, which is why they support him. It's not because they're being fed a load of lies, which of course they are. Mm. It is in part because they believe in those uh, uh, those lies. So it is absolutely imperative uh, that we end this uh, stalemate because the stalemate will only go one way, uh, and that is in favour of Russia because they have overwhelming force. Yes. And even if uh, we are supplying these magnificent um, uh, hand-held hand, uh, uh, anti-tank weapons in law, and each time they're fired, apparently, the Ukrainians say, God save the Queen, uh, bless them. Um, this is not itself going to resolve this crisis. And as you rightly say, if he succeeds here, where next? And we've already seen the threatening noises he's made to Lithuania uh, because of the imposition of sanctions on Kaliningrad. Uh, so uh, I'm afraid to say the West has got to face up. Fortunately, we have a very good new chief of general staff, yeah. the head of the army, General Patrick Sanders, who is really robust. I know him. I think he's a great man. Uh, and I think that he has spelled out to the British people what is at stake. And it is not just a question of Ukraine. It is the freedom of the West, the freedoms that we all hold dear in this country are at stake if we do not um, we do not challenge yes. uh, this this dictator. Because it's, a very, it's a very different conflict, isn't it, to the one that we saw uh, in the Balkans, you know, back in the 90s when, when the former Yugoslavia was breaking up and there were sort of factional fights going on. And it was a horrible war and it did happen on European soil. But yet... It wasn't seemingly a threat to anybody outside of that region, whereas this is. It is a threat uh, because uh, Russia is is directly engaged. It wasn't directly engaged in uh, in the Yugoslav mm. conflict. It was acting uh, through proxies. But here it is a direct engagement. Uh, and the, you're absolutely right. We do need to reassess. We have been configuring our armed forces to deal with counterinsurgency of the kind we've seen in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan. Indeed, I first met uh, General uh, General Patrick mm. uh, when he was uh, preparing his brigade to go out to Afghanistan uh, as the brigade commander, as he then was. Um, that's how we've configured our armed forces, and they have done well at that operation. But, of course, we're reducing the number of tanks, I think we've got to revisit this whole thing. And I was very pleased to see that the Defence Secretary was reported as saying, although he's uh, denied it this morning, reported he was he was going to say yesterday that we need to increase our defence expenditure. Mm. It isn't so much a question of increasing it to certain numbers. It's a question of buying the equipment that we need to secure our people and to secure our interests abroad. That is what we need. We do not have enough tanks. We will not have enough soldiers even to operate uh, alongside other allies. Uh, and we will not have enough aircraft or enough ships. And I'm afraid British people have got to be prepared that we've got to reconfigure ourselves to meet this threat. Because if this threat is allowed to persist through cyber attacks, through uh, disruption of our supplies, the cost of living crisis we all face at the moment, this is down to two countries. It's down to China and the pandemic and, and Russia uh, with the oil crisis. 
And of course, they've stolen 800,000 tons of Ukrainian grain. And that is, uh, those are supplies which either have gone to the West or indeed would have gone to impoverished. Yeah. A lot of it was uh, going to Africa, wasn't it? Well, exactly right. And isn't it uh, sort of ironic in a way that the last sort of defence review was recommending that actually we moved away from military hardware and moved towards cyber warfare? Well, they couldn't have got that more wrong, really, could they? I thought that the the basis of the uh, defence review last year was actually uh, not unreasonably founded, uh, except that we had seen what Russia was doing First of all, in 2008, when they annexed part of Georgia, right. uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which they still hold, and then in, uh, seizing Crimea, part of Ukraine, in 2014. So the writing has clearly been on the wall, and we have ignored it. We've been complacent. We've been naive. We failed to think the unthinkable. The unthinkable has happened. It's about time people now started thinking the unthinkable for the future. And clearly, we have got to look back at that defense review. Yes, uh, uh, using cyber, using space, very important. Royal Air Force, key role there. But uh, at the end of the day, what's happening in Ukraine is an old fashioned ground war with artillery and, 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 and tanks uh, and, and uh, of course, air assault. Uh, and we need, we need to learn lessons from this to, be, to prepare ourselves in case, as General uh, Sir Patrick Sands, head of the army, said yesterday, uh, we need to prepare for a war with Russia. I mean, that is the brutal truth. And yeah. the nation, I'm afraid, has got to recognize that we have got to switch our priorities. We've done a huge amount of public expenditure on the NHS and elsewhere. It is now defense which needs yes. priority. So, Gerald, thank you very much indeed. So, Gerald Howarth there, former Conservative MP, uh, former Defence Minister, of course, as well, talking about those stark words, we must prepare for a war with Russia. That's what he said. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. A lot of you very appreciative of Frank Ferreira. One uh, tweet here says, Frank Ferreira is the most sensible person I've heard in years. What a great interview with Mike Graham. Well, that's very true. Uh, Paul in Hodston in Hearts, uh, Hertfordshire says, when is a referendum not a referendum? Answer, when the result is not what you want. Keep trying, Nicola Sturgeon. Well, I think the thing about Nicola Sturgeon and the wish for a second referendum is that everybody thought Indy Ref 2 had gone away. Everybody thought, basically, look, you lost the first referendum. The majority of people in Scotland voted by quite a large margin to stay within uh, the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, she says, they want to have another referendum because not only did the first referendum happen too long ago to be remembered, but basically the next referendum should happen before the next generation comes along, even though they said the last referendum was in fact a once-in-a-generation vote. So now they're asking for permission to have a referendum, but they say they shouldn't be asking for permission from Boris Johnson and the British government. They should be asking for permission from the Supreme Court. So that's where it is. We'll talk about that uh, with the Scottish political editor of The Times coming up very shortly. But something else uh, has come to my attention, which I feel I must raise with you. And it is, I'm afraid, on the subject of what can only be described as wokery. Because here's what's happened. The Halifax, which up to now has been considered to be a building society stroke bank. It used to be known as HBOS, didn't it? Halifax Bank of Scotland. Halifax has got a Twitter account in which they have basically put out a picture of somebody working at the Halifax with a little name tag on uh, their lapel, uh, which says Gemma, she, stroke her, stroke hers. Pronouns, you might say. Now, some people, quite rightly, 
have commented on it. Because let's face it, Twitter is a public forum. Twitter is a place where people have conversations. It's a place where people have debates, sometimes not terribly nice debates, but they have debates in which they give their opinions. Now, an awful lot of people have reacted negatively to this particular uh, post by Halifax, because basically it looks as though they're just trying to be as woke as they can possibly be. Now, a couple of people have criticised them, and they have answered in various different ways. Somebody called Andy from Halifax got into a conversation with one of the customers of Halifax who said he wasn't very happy about this pronoun business, saying quite rightly that it's kind of detracting from the main business at hand. Why are you doing it? I might close my account. So here's what Andy M said in response to one of his customers, one of Halifax's customers. We strive for inclusion, equality, and quite simply, in doing what's right. If you disagree with our values, you're welcome to close your account. Now, you might say that Halifax would like to have their employees give this policy out so that basically we're so inclusive that if you don't agree with us, you can get lost and you can take your money elsewhere because we don't want it. I mean, this is where we are now in this country. Another one says, hi, I'm Lee. We want to create a safe and accepting environment that opens the conversation around gender identity. Why? You're a bank. We care about our customers and colleagues' individual preferences. For us, it's a very simple solution to accidental misgendering. Yeah, but except you don't care about your customers, do you? Because if you did care about your customers, you wouldn't be telling them to get lost and close down their accounts because they don't like what you're doing. So I think the Halifax has got this completely wrong. And it wouldn't surprise me if they take the view down the road that it was a massive error and a massive mistake. If you're a customer of the Halifax, I'd love to know what you think. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to James, who's in London. Hello, James. Hi, Mike. What's your pronoun, James? Uh, uh, His Majesty, if you wouldn't mind. That'll do. I can call you that. I'm happy with that. I mean, how can this bank... I'm sorry to drone on about the Halifax, but how can they say that we care about our customers and colleagues' individual preferences when they clearly don't? Because if you don't agree with what they've done, they want you to close your account. Well, Mike, this is the insanity that we live in. The, the idiots have got the keys to the asylum. They have. It's mad, isn't it? Oh, Mike, it's just beyond. And that just riles me up to the next point. Nicola McCrankey, who is a <laughs> national... Mike, she is a... She's a risk to national security. This woman wants to take our national deterrent out of Scotland. This is a woman who is presiding over uh, the biggest drug deaths in Europe. Yeah. She, uh, the men and women have got the shortest lifespans in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. Uh, she spends more money per head on people up there than we do down here. She wants to keep the Barnet formula. She wants to keep the pound. She wants to keep the Queen. I'm sorry, no to all of them. Are you one of those, James, that thinks that they should not be able to leave the uh, uh, Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland without the people of Great Britain and Northern Ireland also voting? Right, that's democracy, Mike. Mike, and at the end of the day, can we just have a look why this woman is there? The only reason this woman is there is because of that devil, Tony Blair, yes. who, who put the uh, devolution in you. What he has done is he broke the country with immigration. He wants to dissolve this country mm. into basically shackles of what we used to be. And what did we do? We made him a knight of the garter. Yes, that wasn't that very helpful. It's a disgrace. Yeah. He is the reason why the United Kingdom is at the brink of breakup. And this man, 
we give him the top as honour. So just realise, this woman got through on the list. She would just be a council worker, if anything, up in Scotland, and she's running the place. So well, she did, she did get through on the list initially, but she now has been elected actually properly. She does actually now have a proper seat. It's a one-party state. Yeah. This is what's going to happen. Scotland, if you go independent, you may as well just call yourself North Korea because the SNP will be in power for years and years and years. And if you make this choice, Scotland, we're not taking you back. You either have to stand up to this woman and tell her to get lost, and if she loses her ballot at the Supreme Court, Mike, she's got to resign. Yeah, but isn't this just a bit of a power play? Because at the end of the day, um, the latest polls show that the, the, the view in Scotland about independence hasn't actually changed since the last referendum. It's still the same basic kind of breakdown of something like 54 uh, to um, 46. But, Mike, she wants us to talk about this and not talk about what's actually happening in Scotland with the education, with the drugs, with the life expectancy. People of Scotland, wake up. She's trying to bluff you with this unicorn. You need to look through her and blow her away. Okay, James, strong words. Well said. Thank you very much indeed. Neil is in South Lanarkshire. He's in Scotland, so what does he think? Neil? Yes, Mike. The the thing about the Scottish independence, which I very much hope never ever uh, happens, people in England uh, don't seem to realise that if uh, Scotland became an independent country, England could not have a Labour government again. Tony yes. Blair won the 97 election with 62 Scottish Labour MPs. Right. How could Labour get a majority without a big contingency of Scottish Labour No, they MPs? can't. You're absolutely right. They can't do it. But you're saying if they didn't have Scotland as part of the Parliament, that they could then perhaps form a government? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, the Tories haven't got anybody up there either. No, but but uh, it's, mathem- it's virtually mathematically impossible for Labour to become the British government if Scotland is independent. Well, it's no, it's impossible for them to become the government if Scotland is part of the union as well, because they haven't got any MPs anymore. No, we'll get over this it's nationalist thing. Yeah, she'll be caught out eventually. Get back to Tony Blair. I don't like mentioning his name. But if you, you're old enough with me to remember the 97 election mm. campaign, his mantra was education, education, education. Right. You, you remember that? I do. What he was selling to the British people was he wanted the education system in the whole of the UK to be as good as it was in Scotland yeah. at the time. Right. Now Scotland's education is a way, way, way down in all the league tables, international league tables, compared to where it was in 97. Since the SNP became the Scottish government, education has went down and down and down in the rankings every year. And what is that about? their, their only emphasis is getting independence. Mm. They're not interested in anything else. Yeah. But yet, and as far as I'm on, my understanding goes, the polls say that the result would be the same as it was the last time. I think so myself, yes. Yeah. But there's always... 
you can't sleepwalk into these things. I mean, nobody could foreseen Donald Trump becoming a president. Mm, right. Crazy things can happen if you go down a certain path. And uh, one of the things I'm worried about is they're on about the bordering Irish mm. Sea. Right. There must be a massive land border between Scotland and England if Scotland becomes independent. Yeah. Because the SNP say they want a come one, come all. They want immigration, mm. unlimited Im immigration to Scotland. Right. So we'd have to set up some border points, basically. I see what you're saying. Thanks very much indeed. Listen, Neil, we've got to run because we're running a little bit late. Coming up, though, we'll be talking more about Scotland. We'll be talking to the uh, Scottish political editor of The Times to find out what he knows exactly why um, Nicola Sturgeon is making her move at this particular time. Because until relatively recently, the belief was that the referendum, the second referendum that they so wanted a couple of years ago, had kind of gone on the back burner because they didn't think they could win it. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock. We've got Prime Minister's questions coming up, of course, uh, later on today. Peter Cardwell will be in, but Boris Johnson, of course, is at the summit in Madrid for NATO, so he won't be doing it. It'll be Dominic Raab, whom I'm afraid is a sort of Tory version of Keir Starmer. However, the good news is that Angela Rayner will be there, so that should uh, create a little bit of fun, a little bit of a roasting for a young Mr Raab, and hopefully she'll be on fine form. I quite like watching Angela Rayner at the dispatch box because she's quite unpredictable. So it should be very good. So you want to keep your eyes on that. We'll be bringing you that live right here at midday. Andrew Allison is here today with his chairman of the Freedom Association. We'll find out what he makes of the striking situation. I mean, it seems like everybody everywhere wants to go on strike. Doctors, dockers, bus drivers, train drivers, train ticket office people, teachers, barristers. I mean, is there anything left that hasn't gone on strike? They're all, they all want one. But who's going to give them any more money? 0344 499 1000. We're also talking about Scottish independence because Nicola Sturgeon says she wants a second referendum, but she doesn't want to have to ask for it. She's just going to do it anyway, which actually wouldn't be legal. So we'll see. We'll take your calls on that as well. This is Talk TV. Andrew, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. So you come to us when summer has once again passed. <laughs> um, it was lovely yesterday. I spent a few happy hours out in the sun. Uh, the sun seems to have disappeared. It is utterly miserable this it morning. It really is. I mean, some, some of those black clouds are really black. Yes, they absolutely are. Let's talk about strikes because I thought to myself, you were coming on today and I thought most people on the right side of, of the political divide are not that keen on strikes. But being your the Freedom Association, I imagine <laughs> you kind of have to be in favour of them, don't you? Well, I'm not personally in favour of them. Uh, I mean, uh, they're the, the just an inconvenience. Uh, I mean, the trains last week, I was due to come down to London. Yeah. But I couldn't mm. because, uh, because I couldn't get, even get back home well, on, you couldn't, on the strike you, could, you couldn't rely on what was happening, could you? That well, was I, the problem. Li literally all the trains to, to, to get me back to East Yorkshire, mm. well, there, well, there weren't any. Right. So I would have to stop at Doncaster... Right. And then somehow or other get a, a taxi 
back, you know, which is a 50 mile journey. So yes. there's no way I was going to do that. And that's the other thing that people don't get about travel in this country. And I always say this till I'm blue in the face. That it's all very well talking about transport in London and being able to get from one side of it to another and getting a tube and getting all sorts of different forms of transport. But out there in the big wide world in the rest of Britain, it's practically impossible to go anywhere on public transport, isn't it? it well, it certainly is for me. Uh, I mean, we have a couple of buses an hour that takes me into Beverly a couple of miles away. Yeah. I mean, I say I live in a village, uh, but I mean, it, it, the, the, the main road between Beverly and Hull runs through our village. Yeah. So, you know, we're not, we're not in the middle of nowhere. Right. We're not in the sticks. But there's, or, or but there's no like actual that. transportation But, services, I mean, you, you've, really. you've, you've got a couple of buses that will mm. take you into town. If you, if, if you want to go to certain parts of, uh, of town, it's one bus an hour. Yeah. When, I lived, in, when I lived in Wiltshire, um, and in quite a small village, but, again, not deserted, there was one bus in the morning to take you into Devizes, which is the, sort of the mm. market town, and one bus in the afternoon to bring you back. Yeah. So unless you wanted to go there for about five hours... There was no way to do it. So older people who didn't have a car was was stuck. And these were the days before you could get your deliveries, you know, sent round to your house. You know, people used to have to go and spend the day in devices to go and do a bit of shopping. I know it's rubbish, and and that's Absolutely like it's, it's like that in in many places around the country. We we rely on our cars. Yeah. And of course, you know, when I was last here in the studio, it was about three weeks ago. I said that the cost of diesel locally to me was about 186, 187. Those were the days. Yeah, well, well those were the days because it's now two quid. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, two last time I filled up, I think it was 198 for diesel. Mm. And, and that's by no means the most expensive you can find. I mean, there's plenty more that are over two pounds now. Well, well, the, the stations near me are at that 199.9 yeah, mark. Right. They don't quite want to put it up that extra fraction of, no. a, of a penny. Right. Because it, it just looks bad. It but, does. But, but it's basically two quid but a litre. Yeah, exactly right. And there doesn't seem to be any sign yet of the government doing anything about it. I mean, I, keep, I get to the end of every week, and I'll probably get to the end of this week on Friday, and yet again, another week will have passed, and we'll be moving into July, mm. and they still haven't done anything. No, not a thing. Uh, I, I mean, they've got a, a VAT windfall, because mm. uh, every time the price of fuel goes up, of course, they, they rate more in yeah. VAT, so, uh, so, they could, so they can do something there. They can reduce the fuel duty, they can reduce the VAT. They can reduce VAT on just about everything yes. to try and help the cost of living crisis. Right. They can cancel the national insurance rise that came in, that just, 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 just reverse that yeah. completely. Um, and then, of course, next year, and maybe many viewers and listeners may not realise this, next year there's going to be a corporation tax hike as mm. well. Yeah, uh, which is just going to damage businesses. Now, I was told that that it will only apply. It's going to go up to twenty five percent, isn't it? But it will only apply to those businesses with a profit of more than a quarter of a million pounds. But that's a lot of businesses. Well, it, well, it, well, it is. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's plenty of medium sized businesses yeah. who, who will who will fall into that. But that's just going to put the cost of everything else up yeah. as well. Uh, and it means that the businesses won't be into invest as much mm. as they as they possibly could. They will not be able to employ as many people as they possibly could. You know, the government needs to needs to get a grip of this. And then we've got the doc who yesterday came out and said we'd like a 30% pay rise. Oh, wouldn't we all? I mean, so would I. Thanks very much indeed. Um, BMA, of course, who are the kind of the commie wing of the NHS. Well, of course, yes. But nevertheless, they're obviously after something. They might not get 30, but they'll probably settle for 10, which is massive. And meanwhile, we've still got the longest waiting list in the history of the NHS mm. for people to be seen. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. Uh, we, we, we can't give in to these really high pay demands no. because it will just keep on fueling inflation. And, we're, right. and we know that. Um, so I, I understand why people want these uh, want, want these rises. Um, I understand. I mean, I, when I was in the supermarket a couple of days ago, I just noticed on the cat food that I buy mm. had gone up from three pounds eighty to four pounds fifty. Yeah, but I think people uh, it's are just overnight, taking though, the Mickey yeah. though. I think some well, of these manufacturers and some of these retailers are just going. You know what? Just stick an extra fifty p on it. They won't notice. They'll just pay it. Well, I certainly I think there's notice a lot of that. It. I certainly notice it. Yeah, and, but you uh, still bought it though, right? 
Um, or did you look for an alternative? I actually did have, get an alternative, strangely mm. enough. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't quite quite as interesting. Good. But 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 no. But I mean, that's just seventy pence overnight on one item. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed it on other things that just go up by twenty. No, I, I noticed it. I mean, I generally speaking, I mean, I do little little bits of shopping, but I generally speaking get a sort of a delivery once every couple of weeks or something. I get six of those big liter bottles of water, and they've gone up from sort of two ninety nine mm. to mm. three fifty, mm. just like that. And just, I'm like, well, why? Why yeah. is water now more expensive than it was last week? Yeah, no, and it's, happen- it's happening. It makes on all no sorts sense, of, and, all I, and I think there's a bit of profiteering going on, and I think the government needs to be careful that they don't just whatever they do do, it just means that people will make more money because by handing money out, which is what they seem to think is the way forward, they're not reducing the price of anything. No, no, no. We 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 got a real problem with inflation. Oh. Uh, I, I mean, uh, F. A. Hayek, the uh, the economist said that uh, once inflation gets out of control, trying to bring it down is yeah. like trying to catch a tiger by yeah. its tail. I don't it, think, it, is, uh, it is very difficult. So we can't have high wage uh, demands. Um, and I do agree with you. I think some of these some of these supermarkets in particular are, are, are just profiteering. Mm. The thing, everyone's expecting it to go up. So yes. why don't we just shove it up then? And I mean, we've got Andrew Bailey, the uh, governor of the Bank of England, who says he can't do anything. He can't control it. Yeah, well, that's his go, job. Well, that's great. That's, that's his, his job. The, the, the job of the Bank of England is to control inflation. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he's going, no, nothing we can do. I mean, might as well fire himself then, might If he's going to sit there and do nothing, which is what I say about Rishi Sunak, he's sitting in the Treasury every day. What's he doing? Well, well, it's, well it, it's, a, it's a very good question. And both Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson have ruled out tax cuts while we've got high inflation. Yeah. But the, 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 the missing something here, though, we're not only trying to get inflation back under control, we're trying to stop the economy from going into recession. Mm. And I'm afraid with, with sky high taxes, people really struggling to pay their bills, the, the economy is likely to go into recession. And we, yeah. and we have to try and stop that. I know. So if, if now is not the time to cut taxes, when is the yeah, time when to is cut the time? Exactly right. And when they keep saying, well, we're coming out of the pandemic and we have to repay all the money that we borrowed, mm. well, maybe now's not the time, as you say. Mm. Let's talk about a bit of a cultural clash, which is, of course, the Michael Vaughan mm. cricket story up in Yorkshire. Mm. Um, I know you're a fan of Yorkshire cricket and you may well be a member of it. Um, our own Darren Goff, I think, is now running it, isn't he? Darren Goff is is running it. It's strange enough, I'm not a member of Durham County, uh, of uh, Yorkshire County Cricket Club because I was always a member of Durham, oh, where, okay. where I came from, and now I'm a member of Middlesex because mm. I'm in London quite a lot. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, I have been to Headingley uh, on many occasions. Yeah. I mean, Michael Vaughan is denying this this racism charge. Right. Apparently, he said to a group of Asian players, God, there's too many of you lot. Well, right. We'll have to change that. Yeah. It could have been a joke. Yes. He's denying he even said it. He, right. can't, he can't recall saying it. And this came up as part of the kind of inquiry the, into... In, in, into the racism yeah. in, in Yorkshire County yeah. Cricket Club. So you see, you've got Michael Vaughan saying that he didn't say it. Mm. But even if he even if he did say it, it was probably a throwaway line. We've got absolutely no idea in what context yes. this, this was but said in. The one thing that I would say is that there's no proof one way or the other whether he said it. No. And if he did say it, in what context he said yeah, it? Exactly. So there, there are literally no facts here. There, there, are, there, are, there are no facts. But yet, there's a group of BBC employees yeah. who have written letters saying we're very uncomfortable about him working uh, for the BBC commentating yeah. on cricket. Yeah. So this guy's character is being assassinated. Yes. Yeah. On pure hearsay. On pure hearsay. And he's now, much to my chagrin, because I talked about this story yesterday and how ridiculous it was that this letter had been written, because the words that they used to describe how they felt about what had happened were so over the top and ridiculous, mm. you know, that they were sort of, you know, they felt tortured or, you know, they were feeling great levels of anxiety and it was bringing back all sorts of horrific things that had happened to people. And you're going, he's commentating on a cricket match. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, you know, I think you might be taking this a bit too seriously. Mm. But one of the most amazing things I heard was on another place, as we call it, uh, another radio station, 
they interviewed some diversity champion, you know, who basically said, well, of course, you know, effectively, there's no smoke without fire. So if somebody's made an allegation, it must be true. And you're kind of going, sorry. No, no, no. And we know that over and over again. You know, we've had members of parliament accused Mm. of all sorts of uh, heinous crimes. And it's and they've just been allegations, and they they haven't been true. But the wokest, of course, always say yes, but they just couldn't be proven. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. You go well, actually, it does mean it didn't happen. Well, if they weren't well, proven, well, well, exactly, it means it didn't happen. Uh, unless you're found guilty in a court of yeah. law, it didn't happen. Yeah. You, 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 so you're Michael Vaughan has been found not guilty of anything, mm. has denied the charge, has not been proven to have done anything mm-hmm. wrong, and yet has now taken a step away from the job. The BBC still insists that he's under contract to them and that he's only gone away temporarily. But this is what happens now, is people put such relentless pressure on the people mm. and individuals that they feel that they have to walk away. Yeah, I think he's still doing some work for The Telegraph, though. Yeah. Because he writes a Telegraph column. Yes. And, and he does a, a, a new podcast now with Phil Tufnell. Yeah. Um, which is actually rather good, mm. if you're a cricket fan. I think mm. people will enjoy it. So I hope that The Telegraph is still sticking with him. He's still continuing to do yes. that. Because he, he is, he's a lovely guy. He's a former England captain. He's a former England captain, mate, but he's a lovely guy. People have respect, uh, do respect him. No, no one has ever accused him of racism or anything like that before. Mm. Um, and, you know, I just I just think it's just totally wrong mm. that, that, that he can be traduced in, in this way on pure hearsay. And also, it's another case of the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? In, in, what in I the was, BBC, yes. In the BBC, but also yeah. in other companies. I remember reading a piece um, about um, Jordan Peterson's new book was coming out and there was a big meeting organised in the publishing house in Canada where it was being done. I think it was Penguin or something like that. Mm. Um and the workers and all the people who were sort of, you know, the, the mid-level and lower-level kind of, you know, workers in the, in, the, in business were saying, you know, we don't feel comfortable publishing this man. He's an absolute, you know, misogynist, you know, yeah, anti-woman, typical. this, that and the other. And happily, the, the people that run Penguin said, well, unfortunately for you, if it wasn't for Jordan Peterson, you wouldn't have a job because mm. he's one of our top-selling authors and we're going to publish the book. If you don't fancy working here, you can leave. Yeah. Thank God that there's somebody and some people that do that. But we've got to stop for a moment. We'll come back with more of the wokery and the wokest that are ruining the world. Uh, we are talking, of course, to Andrew Allison, and we'll talk to him some more coming up after this. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been talking about a great many things this morning. How about this from Mark in Sunbury? So the left-wing barristers who did not protect our freedoms during lockdown and are now on strike will soon be our unelected masters. Democracy is being destroyed from within by our civil service, our legal system and our education system. We may still vote, but the power is with the leftists who run the country. Well, I think there's certainly an argument to be made that um, more and more uh, pressure groups and individuals are able to get things done easier than the government because every time the government tries to get things done uh, somebody stands in the way but one of the things that's currently going on up in scotland north of the border uh, is that nicola sturgeon the first minister has decided that the waiting is over and she's not willing any longer to be uh, handing herself into the westminster uh, elites to ask for another referendum she says she's just going to go ahead and do it and she's gone to the Supreme Court to see whether there's a law that will allow her to do that. Let's talk to Kieran Andrews, who's a Times Scotland political editor, uh, also author of Breakup, How Alexander Nicola Sturgeon Went to War. Kieran, a very good morning to you. Hey, Mike. Now, you'll probably tell me that I'm talking absolute rubbish, but this kind of came out of the blue a little bit, didn't it? 
So we knew that there was something coming from Nicola Sturgeon. She has made clear that she wants to push for a second independence referendum to be mm. held in October next year. Right. What was a bit of a surprise yesterday was the fact that she referred herself to the Supreme Court to rule on whether or not that's legal. Most commentators, uh, most legal experts believe that it is not, that Horu can't hold a referendum because the relevant powers over the Constitution sit at Westminster. And the UK government said it doesn't want to hold another referendum and there's a suspicion that this is more gearing up towards the next general election because crucially what Nicola Sturgeon added was that if her plan is shot down by the Supreme Court then she will go into the next general election whenever that may be campaigning that uh, if majority of people vote for the SNP in Scotland at that general election she will take that as a mandate to open independence negotiations which is quite a big shift for the yes. SNP that's a pretty major policy shift for them. And it's quite a clever move, isn't it, really? Because obviously everybody knows that those who vote for SNP at a general election or at a local uh, Hollywood election don't always do it because they want independence for Scotland. Well, it's certainly a clever move to galvanise support at a general election. I mean, it comes with pretty big risks, though, that, um, that, that move. Even at their height, you know, the SNP... In 2015, the best result they've ever had when they returned 56 of Scotland's 59 MPs. They won 49.97% of the vote. Yeah. So even on their very best day, a remarkable, remarkable result that was, they didn't actually get over the line that they have now uh, drawn for themselves for any future um, you know, potential constitutional general election. I mean, it will make them more relevant than they uh, may have been. You know, This was shaping up to be very much a queer fight between Labour and the Conservatives even in Scotland, mm. um, with the SNP sort of sidelined, they have got themselves on the pitch. But it's a it's it's a pretty big risk for if she if she truly believes in the dream of independence. Yeah, and how 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 unpopular, I suppose, is is, is the right question to ask? Is she compared to the way she was? Because she was really popular at one point in Scotland before the pandemic. She took a bit of a hit during the pandemic because of all the restrictions that she put on people. I mean, I know personally lots of formerly uh, SNP supporting people in Scotland who now say they, they won't vote for her. Well, the polls have kind of oscillated quite a lot with Nicola Sturgeon. Again, that period around 2015, she was incredibly popular, booming. That dipped um, a couple of years later. As she, Ironically, as she tried to force a vote on independence right. after the, the leave vote in the 2016 EU referendum and the 2017 general election. Her popularity bounced back up into the stratosphere um, at the start of the pandemic. She was seen as a kind of reassuring voice and, and, uh, and yeah, I, her popularity was soaring at that point as support for independence increased. But again, we've dipped right back down that she's still, listen, it's, it's, it's easy to overstate this. Nicola Sturgeon is still the most popular politician in most polls yeah. um, in Scotland. Her popularity rating is still positive, but she's undoubtedly um, a divisive figure and because of her, um, basically because of her views on the Constitution. Mm. And as far as her kind of end game is concerned, there have been people, her critics admittedly, who have said that she's kind of in the, the final throes of her power and maybe this could be the sort of last ditch attempt to, to gain some form of foothold on history because, you know, Almost her work is almost the best. The best work of hers has almost been in the past, hasn't it? Well, I, I think Nicola Sturgeon is searching for a legacy here. Yeah. Um, Aren't they the all? Best, well, yeah, but you say the best work of hers is in the past. That is definitely true when it comes to winning elections. She's been formidable at winning elections. But if you were to ask what 
Nicola Sturgeon's legacy as First Minister would be. She's now the longest serving First Minister Scotland has ever had. I think people would be hard pushed to find something that ultimately defined her. Mm. And um, and this may well be, it's a gamble. Nicola Sturgeon is instinctively a very cautious politician. This is a big gamble that may well be her trying to find that legacy and define her time as First Minister. Right. And are the polls still showing that the split on independence is pretty much what it was in the first referendum? Yeah, we had a poll actually to coincide last month with Nicola Sturgeon becoming First Minister, YouGov poll for the Times, and it found that support for independence was at 45% of the population, um, vote for uh, support for the union rather was 55%, which is exactly what it was in right. 2014. Um, you know, all of the polls are showing across the piece that the union is still slightly ahead, but it is, it's really tight. It's It's kind of tossing a coin in the air as to who would win a future referendum. Right. Certainly that's what uh, most of the polling experts in Scotland have, have said when they've read the ruins of, of you know, polls of the last few years or so. Sure. But I guess what it, it inevitably will mean is that she hasn't really moved the dial, I suppose is what I mean on independence. You know, it is where it was. She hasn't convinced anyone that, that, that her case is any better, really. The people who might have voted for it the last time will vote for it again, possibly. Um and she, to me, she just feels to me... I mean, I used to know her quite a bit when I worked up there. And she seems to have lost her luster a little bit. She's become, as you say, more cautious. She's less sort of flamboyant than she used to be. She's less kind of, in a way, approachable, I suppose, than she used to be. I've never heard anyone describe Nicola Sturgeon as flamboyant before, but I'll, I'll, I'll Well, you that. should have seen her in Regano's back in the uh, early part of this century. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but what's certainly true, and and you know her, her critics and, and pro union campaigners have, have pointed that out multiple times that you know there the has been a vote to leave the EU across the UK when Scotland voted decisively uh, remain. Um, Boris Johnson, seen as the potential mass recruiting sergeant for uh, the independence, has been prime minister for for a number of years mm. and. And yet, and yet, the dial hasn't really shifted in terms right. of the headway number. So there is a question: if if these things won't move, uh, you know, the population towards independence, what will? Right. And the SNP at the moment is a slightly tarnished brand. You'd have to say they've had a couple of scandals, um, which their their enemies will happily point out. Um, and the ship doesn't appear to be particularly united either. Yeah, there's a sign that the Teflon coating is certainly starting to scrub off slightly yeah. with the SNP. And the group at Holyrood is actually still pretty united. They they are um, of of one hive mind on the vast majority of things. Um, whether or not that's healthy, I'll, I'll kind of leave to others to discuss. But what we're seeing, particularly with the group in Westminster, is it is massively divided. Mm. There's factions all over the place, and they also feel alienated from Nicola Sturgeon, from uh, the group at Hollywood, a little bit left out of out of the loop and left in the lurch yeah. slightly. And I think it's no coincidence then that, you know, it is in the Westminster group that we're seeing most of the discontent and most of the scandals. Yes. They're bored with very little to do. Yeah, absolutely. And Ian Blackford's running the place, so I suppose you would perhaps go a little bit off the uh, reservation from time to time. Thank you very much indeed. Kieran Andrews there, The Times, Scotland political editor. We'll be hearing from Ian Blackford, of course, uh, coming up in Prime Minister's questions. Um, but the SNP, they haven't really done it. Nicola Sturgeon hasn't quite managed it, has she? By the way, do you know what it is today? It's the second anniversary of Times Radio. So happy birthday, guys.
We'll see you soon. This is Talk TV. Understand. Accept no substitutes. Talk Radio. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We'll get more uh, coming up very shortly from Andrew Allison from the Freedom Association. We're just going to take a little uh, moment to appreciate uh, the amazing life, the inspiring life and very sad death of Dame uh, Deborah, of course, Deborah James. She died last night, eventually succumbing to the cancer that she had had for such a long time. Uh, She was given only a few weeks to live many, many weeks ago and she became a real inspiration to so many people, not just cancer sufferers, but, but many people just who knew how much she changed their lives. We're going to talk now to Carol Vorderman, uh, who uh, is, of course, uh, somebody who's very familiar with what life is like in the public eye. And and Carol, very good morning to you. Um, Dame Deborah was quite a remarkable woman because she did what many people, you and me perhaps included, probably could never have done. I would agree with that, to be honest. Mm. I mean, we've all, we've all been touched by cancer, haven't we? You know, in our families, sure. everybody knows someone, has loved somebody, uh, has left somebody who is currently going through the treatment. I mean, it, uh, and the way she smiles, the smile you remember. Yes. And it's the, that energy that she had. And often when people talk about cancer, obviously you talk about sad times. You talk about those things, but she seemed to pers- personify the opposite yeah. of that. She she kind of had that energy. I'm not sure I would, Mike no well I think that's the question we all ask at these times isn't it what what would I do if that happened to me and would I be able to do what she did she was sort of relentlessly positive even still while being very realistic about it yes and I think you know because it it, you know she was in our eyes she had been a deputy head teacher and I have the greatest admiration for all teachers and she had to give that up she had two young children obviously a lovely husband and to see a young family go through that i think she was 35 when she was diagnosed you know it's another tragedy Mm. and nobody wants to to see that but she fought it and she defied the odds and she went through the treatments and she was very honest on social media Mm. and and the podcast and and all of those things and 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 you know, through those five years when we all as a public got to know her, I didn't know her as a friend, but just as an observer, really. Yeah. And, um, and, and or, you know, so many of us, millions of us were touched by cancer in our families or in our friendships during those five years. And I think she was this beacon, really. I think, you know, it's just so terribly yeah. sad just really really sad yeah it yeah. is and she was very much part of the sort of family here at news and i love yeah. her final kind of post on on instagram find a life worth enjoying take risk yeah. love deeply have no regrets and always always have rebellious hope yeah, you'd want to say that, that to idea. any of your children wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah i have to say that is something that i would say normally yes you know i thought of when i read it actually i thought of you i thought that's the sort of thing carol would say (laughs) yeah you know it's not always it's It's not always doing it my way sometimes you know it does sometimes get a bit messy and it can be a bit horrible sometimes but you just get on with it you know yeah yeah absolutely amazing i mean you know um but there is some fantastic research and you know everyone's been so generous donating to the bow babe fund yeah which i think is i'm not sure if it's topped seven million pounds now i think it has has it has it topped yeah i think so and i think yesterday it was just under Mm. and um and that research is 
phenomenal at the moment. My daughter is a research scientist working in that field, right. and uh, she's just uh, finished at Cambridge, where there, there's a drug that's in that stage where it can specifically target tumors rather than people having to go through chemotherapy which affects the whole of the body yeah. so you know there is there are these things that are coming through at the moment and um you know with this money she has has this legacy really where new drugs will will come through new treatments will come through new diagnoses faster diagnoses which was one of her messages wasn't it all the time yeah. just go and get checked go and get checked go and get checked don't leave it don't leave it and and you know that is a phenomenal legacy that she has left yes it really is a remarkable story and, and a remarkable yeah. woman well listen it's a sad day carol but thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us carol vorderman uh, there who absolutely as as we all did had such a great deal of admiration and terribly sad story andrew allison's here um you felt as though you knew her really mm. even though you didn't you know yeah, I mean, she really is or was inspirational. Mm. I mean, she could have got very angry with life, yeah. shut herself away, but she didn't. Yes. She 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 used her, her, her illness to raise awareness mm. of it, to raise money for it, uh, and to try and make life better for, for, for other people. And, and who knows how many people's lives will be saved exactly. because of what she did. Ex- exactly. You, you know, know, so, I mean, you know, inspirational, the same way the captain Sir Tom Moore was inspirational. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, even though she was so desperately ill and dying, she still brought a huge smile yeah. to your face, didn't she? She did. And you can donate. We're going to be um, uh, raising more funds, of course, for her in her memory. Bow Babe uh, is the name of the fund, and you donate at Just Giving. And we just got it there on the screen um and it's just peaking up to seven million so it'll be seven million i'm sure before this show is over uh if you want to donate just please go and do so um from that sublime um sad story to the ridiculous and, and another story from your part of the world halifax yes the uh, building okay. society i mean have you ever seen anything so nutty well it, it's 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 quite I mean, actually common... telling your own customers to shut their account if they don't like it. I, I, well, I, well, I know, and this and this, this whole pronouns thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was looking on Twitter, uh, well, actually Facebook, uh, a few days ago, and uh, it's someone's daughter who uh, who now identifies as non-binary. Okay. So that so that they're the they and them bit. Right. And and the writing uh, do, do, don't they look good? Yes. I'm really pr- and. The whole thing is just totally ungrammatical. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense no. at all. No. Where were you doing it? But 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 now, I mean, I picked up a story that said that was it in the BBC where the, where they're being told that the, there are about 150 different types of gender yes. or, or or something like that. The whole world is going completely mad. Yeah. You know, people are dying mm. in in Ukraine. People yeah. are being bombed out. All the atrocities, the war crimes yes. that are going on. And all some people can actually possibly think about is uh, it's getting pronouns right. Although, as Piers Morgan pointed out uh, during the, the heat of the sort of abortion debate in America, he says, isn't it funny how everybody's rediscovered the word woman? Because ah, yes, yes. Those lefties <laughs> who think that it's a woman's right to have an abortion didn't say it's a person's right to have an abortion. Suddenly it was all about women. Yes. Which, of course, it should be. Which, which it should be, yes. But, uh, no, you know, Piers is right on that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's just extraordinary. But but the thing that gets me is that, you know, if you want people in your um, organisation to wear a badge that has their pronoun on it, fine. But, I mean, I don't think that bothers, bothers me so much as the idea that somebody defends it and says, if you don't like it as a customer, cool. get lost. Yeah. 
I find that extraordinary. Yeah, well, it is. It is. It is extraordinary. Uh, but I mean, the, 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 to me, the whole thing is just completely mad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the the picture I saw on, on Twitter, I think her name was Gemma. Yeah. And, and underneath it's got you know she and her and things like yeah. that. Well, what else would you would you would you call Gemma? Oh, exactly. I, I mean, it, it, it's. Or it, also, how about I just call you Gemma? You know, that's your name. Mm. Put your name there, and that's what I call you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very uh, odd. It, very odd. Let's finish up with your views on the latest uh, from the Boris camp. Um, <laughs> he's out um, going to a lot more places where he's more popular than he is here, it would seem. You know, for example, Germany and Spain. <laughs> oh, well, well <laughs> yes. <laughs> where he would go almost anywhere rather than go to Doncaster the other week because he didn't fancy getting a going over from the local uh, Tory sort of members, I suspect. Well, well, no, no, he, he didn't seem to, and uh, I, I like the expression that he, that he that he was hot-footing it from Germany because because the Germans are so green they wouldn't put the air conditioning on in Bavaria. Oh, which, and if you go to Bavaria at this time it's of year, it is very very hot. Yeah. Well, that is yeah. ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, that's when you also know the world has gone mad. You know, we have come this far as a civilization to have invented air conditioning to keep us cool. But now we're not going to switch it on because it might kill the planet. Really? Well, you know, if Boris would like some advice from me, I doubt that he that he does want it. But I will give him some advice. Yeah. That uh, he has to be more like Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. He has to be a strong leader. He has to, and not just internationally, but but but, yeah. but domestically as well. He's got to look at low taxation. Yeah. He's got to look at uh, a, a limited government mm. uh, and stopping the government just you know, poking its nose in. Where it's not required. We need a smaller state in that respect. um, That's where he needs to go because if he doesn't go in this direction, in other words, if he doesn't, if he if he just um, continues the way he's going, and he and he he doesn't want to give him like a conservative, Mm. then I'm afraid he's going to be on the way out. Yeah, I think he is. You're absolutely right, Andrew Allison, Freedom Association. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here at Talk TV. We are here, of course, uh, all the way through until one o'clock. Coming up at midday, uh, it is Prime Minister's question. So Peter Cardwell will be here. Uh, he'll be talking us through the rather unusual uh, matchup of uh, Mr. Dominic Raab and, uh, of course, Angela Rayner. So it should be a bit more lively than it sometimes is from the Labour side, at least. You know, because all the shouting normally comes from Boris Johnson's side and Keir Starmer just keeps missing the ball. Uh, I don't think Angela Rayner will do that. She might be quite interesting. Particularly now that we hear that she and Sir Keir may not be seeing exactly eye to eye, particularly on the uh, rail strikes and particularly on strikes in general. But somewhere else where there is a massive problem uh, in this country is, of course, the Metropolitan Police. They've been put in special measures. Now, Somebody might ask the question as to why that didn't happen earlier, because they've been a shambles, quite frankly, for a very long time indeed. The police watchdog has basically highlighted systemic problems, including all the recent scandals that they've had, a failure to log 69,000 crimes. They still don't really have anybody running the place because Cressida Dick left rather unceremonially, uh, having been hoisted out by Sadiq Khan. Um, They've had the terrible Sarah Everard scandal. They've had all sorts of terrible things going on in police stations. They've had the strip search of of young women uh, who are at school. Let's talk to Nusrit Metab now, former Met Police superintendent, who knows a thing or two about the organisation and what's wrong with it. Uh, Nusrit, very good morning to you. Good morning, Graham. Nice to talk to you. Now, listen... um, Things are not very good in the Metropolitan Police. They haven't been for quite a long time. Uh, What exactly does special measures mean? Well, um, basically, firstly, I'd like to say pretty much that I actually welcome this and I totally agree with you. This should have been done a long time ago. Since, you know, 2019, even before, myself and the communities have been saying this, but we weren't 
heard. Our voices weren't being heard. Mm. So it's a really welcome uh, step. Disappointed that the Met didn't actually, to, you know, um, actually try to improve. So this has come about because uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate have done an in-depth report on the Met and they've done an inspection and they've actually found real failings and they found that so many concerns uh, throughout the years have been done but the concerns haven't been addressed appropriately so they've gone into they've done their investigation phase they've now gone into the engage phase which means that they put uh, the Metropolitan Police Service into special measures so they will offer them greater scrutiny greater support to make those improvements and basically the leadership of the Met will then liaise, have regular meetings with the management of HMIC yeah. to actually see what improvements they've made. And this will be done quarterly. What's not quite clear is that what actually happens if the improvements aren't made? Because you and I know that this is not something new. This has been building up for decades and we're still where we are 30 years plus. So it's not really clear. But what I, from my understanding, Graham, is the mic, is that they'll stay in this phase up until they actually make improvements. And then it may well affect their funding in the future as mm. well. So they've got to come up with this urgent plan. And I'm surprised if they haven't got an urgent plan because <laughs> you know that the mayor has asked uh, before she left the commissioner, the ex-commissioner, to put together a plan to tackle the lack of confidence uh, that the public have. But presumably, of course, anything that Cressida Dick has done, I mean, you've worked in plenty of organisations, I'm sure, as I have. As soon as anybody leaves, everything's their fault. You know, you go into a meeting and they go, oh, yeah, that was Cressida Dick's fault. She's gone. Um, we'll have to change everything. And so whatever plan she may have had will probably be being poo-pooed even as we speak because it will all be wrong because it was all her idea. So, you know, somebody else will want to claim credit. But I find it extraordinary that the biggest police force in Britain doesn't actually have anybody officially running it. Yeah, and I mean, can I just address that? Because the whole problem with the the outgoing commissioner or the ex-commissioner was she didn't have a plan. She's had, you know, five, she's been in power, uh, under her leadership for a number of years, but she just failed to have that plan. And that was one of the issues. So you're absolutely right. Um, there is no leadership. But even when we did have a commissioner, there was poor and weak leadership. Now, there's two candidates that are going through the process. And they're towards, I think, you know, having uh, interview uh, towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the process. Yeah. But what is different about those candidates? There is nothing that they bring that's new to the table. And in fact, uh, Mike, one of the candidates is the assistant commissioner, and he's been under the leadership for a number of years. Uh, with Christina Dick and has achieved nothing. Yeah. So where is the change going to come from? So you say that there's no leadership, and I think what's happened is it was a great opportunity that's been missed by uh, Priti Patel and the mayor to do something different and to have uh, elected mayor, uh, elected commissioner, or to choose somebody that's independent, that actually comes in from a different organisation mm. that understands change and understands what's going on. Because for me, that's missing. And you're absolutely right that the present leadership or the lack of leadership or the leaders we've got are just not effective. No, they're really not. But also there seems to be, I mean, it's described as sort of systemic 
um, problems. But it really seems to be an organisation in complete and utter disarray, doesn't it? Because, I mean, they're not very good at solving crimes. They're not very good at controlling their own officers. They're not very good at controlling what their officers do uh, or say uh, or exchange on social media. You know, there doesn't seem to be even a set of rules by which everybody's told to operate under. And that's where the special measures come in, because they are a failing organisation. And isn't it a shame that we live in a society now, the times are, that we have a government that is, you know, ma- uh, making the very laws that they're, you know, breaking the very laws that they're making. Mm. Uh, they don't, you know, they're dece- deceiving and betraying the public. And then we have a police service that's under inspection and special measures. You know, people of London deserve better. The country deserves better. And we're being failed by both the government and uh, the biggest police service in the country. Yeah, amazing. And I mean, as a former police officer, senior police officer yourself, I mean, what is it about the cops that they can't seem to solve any crimes? I mean, we just recently had that incredible statistic that there's something like a million burglaries that have not ever been solved in the past couple of years up and down the country. You know, it seems to ordinary people looking in, that seems incredible. Because, you know, um, over a period of time, and and this is not an excuse, but over a period of time, resources have been cut. Priorities are different. Priority isn't burglary. It's violence against um, women and girls, male violence against women and girls. So we have a situation where the resources are not being used effectively because they've been stripped over time. So there's a number of reasons. But, you know, quite honestly, Mike, that's no excuse. You should be able to work and to deal with priorities that need to be dealt with. That's where we. That's where leadership comes in, and there isn't any leadership. And the leadership that's there is not effective. It's not doing anything, and that's why we have a situation where public confidence is really on the floor, mm. and hence special measures. Absolutely the right decision. And on this one, I have to back the Mayor of London and his statement as to what's gone on with the police service. Okay, Nusrit, thank you very much indeed. Nusrit Mehtab there, uh, former Metropolitan Police Superintendent. There really is a massive problem at the heart uh, of almost all police services or forces in this country, if you like. You know, Greater Manchester Police have been put in special measures. Now you've got the Metropolitan Police put in special measures. What they need is not so much special measures as they need somebody who knows how to run the police service. Surely, to God. Somebody who knows how to arrest the bad guys, how to actually investigate a crime, and then push it all the way through the CPS into a conviction in the courts. That's what they seem to have forgotten how to do. Uh, Jackie says this, Mike, these pronouns are not about gender. It's all about authoritarianism and control. Making you comply is the goal, which is what all this woke stuff is about. If you dissent, then you're punished or cancelled. I can see that. Let's talk to Richard in Manchester. Hi, Richard. Oh, good morning, uh, Mike. Thanks ever, ever so much for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I, I never I never mentioned it to anybody before, but I've had a five-year stint of uh, this uh, prostate cancer business. Oh, and have you? I've been up, up at um, uh, the Christie Hospital in Manchester, which is world-renowned and very, very famous, and mm-hmm. they're great, great people. Are they looking and after it, you well? Here, here I am. Here I am. What good man. Fourteen years ago, so I wow. did five years with them, and then they said I'm okay, carry on. And then all of a sudden, fourteen, sixteen months ago, I had a, a shout that I'd got a form of leukemia, and I've been taking chemotherapy ever since. Mm. And it doesn't often make you sleep. <laughs> no, I bet it does. I bet it does. And and I mean, Dame, I don't know if you wanted to talk about Dame Deborah James, but I mean, she was an incredibly inspirational figure. I would imagine, particularly to somebody 
like yourself who's, who's being treated for cancer. Absolutely. And if I could, like, measure up to one quarter of an inch as good as her and what she has done for people. If anybody's got cancer, don't be afraid. Just face it head on as she did. And honestly, at the end of the day, you can virtually every week pick something up where they found a new cure, not 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 something that they're going to experiment with for years. Mm. They've actually found it, and it goes on and on and on, and I'm so enthusiastic about it that if anybody mentions it to me, I just say, go and get it checked out by the finest doctors in the finest country in the world, and that includes America. We've got the finest over here, honestly, Mike. Listen, very well said, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. We do have some fantastic people that work in the NHS. We do give the NHS a going over when it makes mistakes, but let's not forget there are some fantastic people. Hey, by the way, here's one for you. Nicola Sturgeon, right? The last referendum cost 15.8 million quid. Should we really be giving them that kind of money to run another one? I bet you it's gone up as well. This one will cost 30 million. I don't think we can afford it. Let's just tell her to get lost, shall we? See you later. This is, of course, Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.